Welcome to the Investing Tutor Podcast, the show for professionals looking to master the most up-to-date strategies needed to build wealth and provide a stable financial future. Here's your host, Dr. Hans Boateng. All right, so today we are welcoming a guest that I am such a big fan of. I discovered you on Instagram, Dr. Hans, but why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Yes, Janice, thank you so much for having me. So in terms of um, who I am, I like to say that um, Dr. Hans, the investing tutor, and I just have a heart for simplifying the topic of investing and personal finance and making it easy to understand. You know, I grew up in Ghana, West Africa. I came to the U.S. as an immigrant and um I just realized that there was a lot that I didn't know about money. And when I discovered, you know, these well-known, and this is well-known in close-knit circles, when I discovered these secrets about the way money works, how to build wealth, leveraging the stock market, it, it completely transformed my life. And I feel like it is an obligation uh, to be able to take that information that I acquired, right, by going out reading well over 400 books, over 40,000 financial journals, uh, research articles, uh, blogs, uh, pouring through, you know, tens of thousands of hours of content, I feel there's a responsibility for me to bring the best of what I've learned and personally experienced in my life and then sharing that information uh, with uh, individuals in our generation. But for me, I would say at my heart, I feel like minorities, immigrants, millennials, and women really need to discover this, especially these underrepresented groups. Yeah, absolutely. I think we have a shared mission in the sense that we both are educating folks through podcasts, through our social media, and just really providing access to information that has been kept from us, for lack of a better term. I mean, I feel like the age of uh, the internet is really why so many people are able to access information about stocks and investing and personal finance in ways that they just couldn't before. Would you agree? Yes. I mean, if you think back to, let's just call it, you know, olden days, to be able to have access to the stock market, you needed to have a stockbroker or financial advisor. Well, let me share this with you. They were paid by commission, right? They made a percentage of the amount of money that you're investing. And let's say that percentage is 2%, right? If you bring them $100,000 of assets, that means they only make $2,000 per year. So even with the $100,000, $2,000 a year is not that much. So they even prefer individuals who have, what, a million dollars in assets because then they're able to make, what, $20,000 a year. So if they have about, you know, five or 10 clients, that's their yearly income. Now, the problem with that is for immigrants and minorities or underrepresented groups, where are they going to have 100000 or millions of dollars? Um, Janice, I'm very sure you're aware of the wealth gap, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so then the internet 
I, I think we take for granted the fact that we can pick up our smartphone and we have access to so many apps that give us access to the stock market, right? It, it just levels the playing field when it comes to being able to build wealth. And I just want our community to know how lucky we are to have the, the chance, at the very least, we have the chance to be able to participate in one of the greatest wealth building tools in the world. Let me go ahead and share this, Janice. Most people don't realize, but when you look at the top 1%, and this is IRS data, the top 1% have three times more money in the stock market than they do in real estate. Often we just hear only about real estate, buy real estate, and there's nothing wrong with real estate because you need to have a diversified portfolio. But the richest people or the richest individuals, most of their wealth is held in the stock market. When you look at individuals like Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, and Elon Musk, how do you think they are at the top of Forbes? Right. It's, it's not because they own a bunch of houses. <laughs> it's not. Definitely not. It's because they own shares or stock in their company. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's such a good point. And you're right that our communities especially focus so heavily on real estate investing because there's this this American dream associated with it, right? Like you're you're successful if you've been able to accomplish that. But I think it keeps us from really understanding all the different mechanisms there are out there to really build the kind of wealth that we see other people building. We can also do that for ourselves, but first we have to know that that is an option for us. And so that's why I'm so grateful to have you here and to talk about how we can start using the stock market to build not just wealth for ourselves, but generational wealth. Yes, it's so important. Yes, and we're going to talk about why that is. But first, I want to find out about your money story. Have you been investing since a child or when did this start for you? <laughs> oh, Janice, I wish, I wish I was investing since I was a child. You know, I, I look at some of the data. When you look at how Amazon has grown, right? If my parents had placed $1,000 in Amazon stock, you know, in 1997, we're, we're talking about almost $2 million, right now in terms of growth. Yeah, just $1,000 once. The accurate number is roughly about $1.5 to $1.7 million, but I'm just rounding it up to $2 million. That should show you that it's just so important to invest, but let me not go on a tangent. So no, truthfully, when I found out about investing for the very first time, it was when I was in college. So prior to that time in growing up, my parents didn't really talk about money. All that I knew was, you know, dad takes care of, you know, the costs in the home. Mom is there as well. You know, mom kind of supports dad. And if you need something, they get it for you. That's all that I knew when it comes to money, nothing else, yeah. <laughs> truth be told. We didn't talk about money. We didn't talk about how to grow it, what to do with it if you have money. 
So I was pretty much clueless, honestly, when it comes to the topic of money. So in terms of my money story, it started from a place of just um, a lack of knowledge and information. And when I discovered, you know, personal finance and financial literacy, which occurred during my undergrad years, I met this mentor who introduced me to Rich Dad, Poor Dad. It was a book that I had read. And that book sparked the curiosity. And then I went off and then started reading like so many books, Richest Man in Babylon, Think and Grow Rich, you know, Random Walk Down Wall Street. I mean, hundreds of books and everything changed for me. And I I know we will talk about this, but after pouring through hundreds of finance books, I wanted to take the best from everything that I had poured through. That is why I view myself as very balanced. I am not someone who is hyper only budget and pay off debt and save money, save, 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 save. And I'm not someone who's hyper only invest, don't save any money, don't pay off debt, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yes. Because I'm able to really or if I should say, I have been able to really see the personal finance landscape and I can see how certain core things that individuals do, namely saving for an emergency, paying down debt, and then investing. These three things are the pillars of financial success. And I've come to realize that they are so important. Yeah, they absolutely build on each other. You can't really be successful from a financial standpoint without focusing at least some energy on all three of those pillars. I absolutely agree with you. So I want to talk about the pre-investor, Dr. Hans. What was your money situation like, you know, growing up in high school? Um, because you said you made this this uh, discovery, right, in, in college. So what was your life like before that? Ah, Janice, I don't think you'd even believe it if I told you. <laughs> When you asked that question, I literally remember driving up to a Bank of America ATM. And at that time, I didn't have enough money in my bank account. So the way that I used to get funds was to overdraft my account. And I thought it was okay because the bank just charges me $20, but I can get access to $100 right now, right? Wow. Yeah. And to me, I thought it was fine. Hey, take $20 and give me a hundred. <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. at that time, it just made sense. Mm -hmm. Seeing it right now, <laughs> that's, <laughs> like, that's like a 20% interest. And back then, if you don't um, top up or bring your account current in, I think about three or five days, they charge another $20 or $30 or so. Right. So that's almost about, you know, give and take about a 60% interest on a $100, um, you know, withdrawal. So it, it goes to show that the financial system is taking advantage of the less fortunate individuals who don't know, right, about these predatory type of activities, so then, I mean, when I came to the U.S., I, I just had a minimum wage job. So I just literally started at the bottom $6 an hour. 
How old were you when you came? I would say I was, uh, I'll say around 18. Okay. 18 years. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd say in the U.S., life for me started in, in the Bronx, New York. I was being paid about $6 an hour or six fifty or so, minimum wage. And it, it, it was just quite the change in Ghana, where I was born. I'll say in Ghana, we were upper middle class. But then you move to the U.S. and when you look at the exchange rate, back then it was about four to one. So it literally means the wealth that you had back in Ghana, you need to divide that wealth by about four. Wow. <laughs> yes, to move to the U.S. So, you know, it was literally like starting from the bottom. So the story that I share with you about, you know, going to the ATM and, and you know, overdrafting to have money, it's just because sometimes your expenses just exceed your income. And you have to do what you can to get by. I'll never forget my girlfriend at that time, who's currently my wife, Tiff. She saw me paying a credit card bill and I was paying the minimum, which was, I think, about 20 or $25. And she asked me, hey, Hans, why are you paying the minimum? And I, I responded, well, that's what the bank is asking for. <laughs> I've always, like, this is the money they want. Look, they are, they, it says it right there. Pay yeah. $25. And she's like, well, if you pay the, <laughs> you know, the minimum, you're going to be paying for this for the next 20 to 30 years. And <laughs> honestly, I didn't even know what was wrong with that. <laughs> you <know>? Because, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because this is what they're asking for. I mean, if they want more money, they're going to ask me for more money. <laughs> but they are asking for $20. Yeah. So she sat me down. She's like, hey, Hans, um, there's something called interest. And kind of broke it down, explained. And I was like, okay, wow, okay. So then she encouraged me to pay a little bit more than the minimum and, and focus on, you know, paying off the card, <laughs> you know, over time. So if you look back to the genesis of my story, it's, it's most people won't believe it, right? Overdrafting, um, you know, not even knowing what interest on a credit card was. I honestly thought it was just money that you could use and then <laughs> just pay a very small amount every month forever, which is okay. And um, fast forward to now, it's just stark difference, stark, stark difference. Absolutely. I, I think, you know, as, as you know, you can laugh about it now, but it's like such a common theme for so many people in our community. They just don't have even the basic understanding of what money does, how interest works, um, both positively and negatively. I mean, we're like starting all from the bottom, especially if you're like first gen uh, and you have parents who really just didn't have that financial literacy to pass on to you. So I think people will definitely resonate with this because I think all of us have been in that position, right? Um, it's just so common. It doesn't matter, you know, where you grew up. I think financial literacy is something that many, many people in in many different communities all over the world are struggling with because it's just not something that that is taught. Yes, it's not something that is taught. And 
I'd say almost money is demonized, right? They make yes. it such they make it so that if an individual you know is is constantly talking about money or wanting to know about money they make you they vilify you almost right they try and say hey why are you so focused on money like you know money isn't everything well the last time i checked i mean the last time i checked money is 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 pretty much as close to oxygen in terms of importance <laughs> oh i would totally agree with you <laughs> so then I think it's it's a subconscious excuse that people use because you know they don't have enough financial resources, right? They don't have enough money, so then they just tend to just throw up their hands and just vilify it instead of doing the opposite, which is what I adopted. As an individual, you you have two options. You can choose to admit that perhaps I don't know much about this thing, right? It's it's like relationships. No one teaches us about relationships, but we're expected to like go get a partner and be the best romantic partner that we see on like, you know, Disney, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the same with money. No one talks to us about money, especially uh, minority communities. How are we supposed to thrive? How are we supposed to be successful? How are we supposed to live an abundant life? when we don't understand this thing. And for me, it wasn't until I embraced this mindset that, hey, wealth is out there and I am someone who should enjoy the finer things in life. That was just my mindset. (laughs) And I'm grateful I had that mindset because it pushed me to ask questions. I'm glad you brought up the mindset portion because I don't think enough of us focus on the fact that that is the foundation of making this shift from the cycle of lack to the cycle of abundance. You have to believe that you're worthy of everything that there is out there in the world because there are other people who have been able to get it. So why can't you? I think that's super powerful. It it transformed my life, Janice. You know, if someone else, you know, can have this lifestyle, what is stopping me from pursuing? Not that... I look at that person's lifestyle and I say, like, for example, I want what they have. No, but like, what is stopping me from, you know, picking myself up from this minimum wage worker and then lifting myself to a point where I can have the lifestyle that I feel I deserve, right? And and that really helped transform my life. Yeah, I love that. Okay, so let's talk about your journey as an investor. So you read Rich Dad, Poor Dad and all of these other books. At what point do you go from being an investing enthusiast to an actual investor? Because for some people, it takes a while to even dip your toes in, even after devouring all of this content. So when did you make that shift and how long did it take you? Yeah, so I started reading about personal finance and investing, I would say, you know, maybe ending of 2009, early 2010. And it wasn't until perhaps 2011, 2012, to be exact, where I purchased my first investment. It was Netflix. I believe it was roughly about $50 a share or so. It's about 600 now. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> so I, I bought two shares, $50. 
And I watched it climb from $50 to $100. And then I sold it. And I was celebrating, Janice. I was like, yes. You know, new investor. I was like, man, I just printed $100, right? Because I had two shares. I was like, I just printed $100. Like, man, Hans, you're a baller. So then I was just so happy. And I went off, took the $100, and what? I spent it. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) And it wasn't until, I'd say, a year or so later, or a couple of months later, and I was like, hmm, I don't think the purpose of investing is just to cash out and spend the money, because (laughs) that's the case. Um, I'm literally not even doing anything to build wealth. So so it was a wake-up call. Where I was like, hmm, I don't think I'm just supposed to cash out my money and spend it. So then, you know, started reading even more books. Lo and behold, the secrets to building wealth, just like with anything else, is to take time. You plant the seed. And I want you all listening to just envision that seed is your money. You plant the seed. You water the seed, you tend to the seed, right? And you can even plant more seeds. And then you wait for it to grow. There's going to be a certain point in the future where you can harvest and then get the fruits from that seed. And the fruits will be in abundance beyond even that original seed that you sowed. And once I understood that concept, it completely shifted me as an individual because I wasn't tempted. I'm sure lots of people were tempted in 2020. Fast money, stock market is going up, buy, options play. And I'm not saying options is bad. I'm just sharing my, (laughs) you know, my strategy. Options play, boom, take that cash, hit it big, you know? Yes. I did that in 2011 with my $100. <laughs> you didn't have to do it again now. <laughs> no way. Right now we're, we're wealth focused, right? We're wealth focused. I don't need to have short-term gains and pay short-term higher capital gains tax and then pull all of my money out of the market to not have anything. Already, when you look at our community, we don't have anything to show for our hard work. When I say we don't have anything, I'm talking about that wealth gap, right? We, we don't have wealth to show for all of the work that we put in. So the last thing that we need to do is to chase tactics that don't create this longevity of wealth. And for those who are listening who perhaps enjoy trading or options or whatever short-term strategy it is, make that a small percentage of your strategy, 10% perhaps of of your investment income, and focus the 90% on long-term wealth building. Because when it comes to generational wealth, it starts with you. It starts with your commitment to wanting to plant seeds, not to come the following day and then, you know, dig it up and, and, and then take it out of the soil. Right. And then wonder why you have nothing to show for yes. it. 
Yes, yes. Leap, plant that seed and water it. And by watering it, I want you to imagine adding more over time, right? And, and allowing that to grow because that plant, we can call it a tree, can serve multiple generations in your lineage. And, and I think that uh, once we understand the power of investing and its ability to, to serve multiple generations, it will definitely shift our mindset. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So let's talk about, so once you made that shift and you realized, hey, I need to be in this for the long term, what was your technical strategy for investing? Did you start off with like index funds or ETFs or did you go straight into individual stock investing? And can you talk about why you took that approach initially and how your journey has changed as an investor over time? Yes, absolutely. Like I shared with you, you know, initially I just bought the individual shares of Netflix. Over time, I started to discover, and in terms of my approach with regards to investing, it's always been more of a a fundamental type of analysis where I want to truly understand the value of what I'm purchasing. It's not that I'm a value investor. No, no, no. But I want to understand what is the value of what I'm purchasing relative to where I see it in the future. Because as an investor, our ultimate purpose or goal with investing is for growth. So then that growth comes in your ability to be able to anticipate where a stock or a fund or an investment is going to be in the future. So I started as an individual stock investor, and it wasn't until later, I'd say about three or four years later, where I discovered that the foundation of everyone's investing should start with, now, if they are employed, a retire-sponsored retirement account, so 401k, 403b, thrift savings plan Mm -hmm. for government employees. That's the starting point. Now, once you've registered for that, then you move up to what I call investment funds. This is where you can have your index funds, your ETFs, right? And an investment fund by definition is just a basket of investments. So you're buying investments in bulk. What it does, it it reduces the risk associated with investing because you don't have to pick individual stocks. And it makes it easy for an individual to get started. And then the third layer of investing is then, you know, individual stocks. So let's talk about the individual stocks because everybody wants to be able to predict who's the next Amazon, who's the next Tesla so that they can get in at the bottom and, you know, shoot their way to millionaire status. How do you actually do that analysis to figure out which stocks are actually going to be the ones that skyrocket? You know, it's interesting. As you were asking that question, I in my mind, in my mind was saying, "Well, that's pretty simple." <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know how simple it is, Doctor Hans, but you can tell me because I feel every time that I'm making an investment in an individual stock, I'm kind of doing like a little, you know, hail mary, doing a little prayer, hoping that this is going to be the one. But I honestly don't know how many of us actually know how to predict that future. So tell us. So let me take a step back and explain why my mind views it as simple. So then I'm extremely curious 
about how the world works. And I am extremely curious about the policies that are in place to shift the world in a particular direction, right? So for example, what do I mean by it's it's pretty simple? If I were to ask, do you see a trend right now towards electric vehicles? What would be your response? Tesla. <laughs> Tesla, perfect. But you see that trend happening, right? In yes. terms of vehicles becoming, you know, battery powered. Everywhere I look, there are those charging stations. There are more of those cars on the road every day. So I'm like, well, something's happening here. Yes. Now, let me ask you, let's flip it to a different industry. Let's take banking. For the longest time, when it came to banking or even brokerage accounts like we were discussing back in the day you needed to go to one of the you know the big banks or the big brokers now you have the robin hoods you have the paypals and you have the squares do you feel that the paypals and the squares are going to continue to grow or do you think that the jp morgans and the bank of americas and and the merrill lynch's will grow you know, at a higher rate than these digital banks? What do you think? So based on my experience, I have been relying almost entirely on electronic payment systems. I hardly ever walk into a bank. There you go. So right now we've talked about two industries, EVs. We've talked about banking. Let's shift. Let's shift to cloud storage. Do you think that companies need to have huge storage facilities on premise to house all of their data, or could they pay perhaps a tenth of the cost <laughs> and be able to offload it to like an Amazon, AWS, or you know other companies in, in the cloud storage space? What do you think would be more efficient and effective to do? Well, I definitely pay for cloud storage. So I'm going to say that's probably the way we're going. <laughs> there we go. Now I'm going to pick one last industry. I could pick several, but we'll, <laughs> you know, we'll pick one last industry. No, this is great. It's getting me in the mind, in this frame of mind that I get where you're going. I love it. Exactly. Now let's take uh, retail stores, right? Most people don't realize this. Online e-commerce accounts for only 10%, maybe with the pandemic, we're at 15% of all uh, retail sales, 10 to 15%. Let me ask you, Janice, over the next 10 to 20 years, do you think it is obvious that we could see a shift where perhaps e-commerce might be 50% of total sales? What do you think? Well, the mall that's across the street from my house is under bankruptcy protection right now. So I'm going to guess that, yes, we are moving towards e-commerce. So with everything you've shared with me so far, you've told me that Tesla and other brands that are solid brands in the EV space are good stocks. You've told me that PayPal and Square aren't going anywhere, so they are good stocks. You've told me that Amazon and, and, and Shopify are also incredible stocks. So how hard is it <laughs> right, to be able to 
just understand. And I think, Janice, I'd say that most people complicate investing. They overthink it. Yeah. All you need to do is to ask yourself a very simple question. Where is the money moving to? That's it. Because where money flows, revenue grows, and shareholders are rewarded. That's it. So at the end of the day, it boils down to, do you see shifts occurring? And if those shifts are happening, make sure that you're positioned. Now, here's the other thing. It should be in industries that you are passionate about or that you utilize yourself. Don't just say, oh, because there's a shift from oil and gas to electric, so I'm going to short oil and gas stocks when you don't even know anything about shorting or what time frame is going to take for oil and gas to lose their revenue to to batteries and EVs. Like, Because that's complicated. Yeah. But then for someone who is a long-term investor, and they are like, okay, Tesla is a strong brand. Um, Amazon has Rivian, which is also an electric-powered vehicle, and they are looking to do robo-taxis. And also, there's this shift towards retail, which we talked about. And Amazon, obviously, is one of the big players there. So an individual could see that, hey, even though Amazon is this large company that it is right now, their future still looks great for the company because there's still more money that's going to be flowing into these industries, which will further accelerate the growth of these companies. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, one question I have for you, because I feel like we've been seeing this more and more as we see companies go public and and the flood of retail investors that are in the market now because of apps like Robinhood, there's a lot of question about when is the right time to get into these newer companies? Because, you know, a lot of quote unquote analysts, specialists, experts say like, oh, these prices are overvalued based on what the company is actually bringing in. And there's a lot of focus on like, don't get ripped off by paying too much for for a stock. So like, how do you know when is the right time to get in? That's a very good question. You're right. IPOs nowadays, once they are out of the gate, meaning that once they go live on the stock market, we're seeing you know a 50% gain, 100% gain instantly before retail investors, so myself included, have access to these investments. So then the reason that's happening is because we're in a bull market where access to really great investments, I I would say, especially investments that are tilted towards, you know, these industries with incredible growth potential, right? I believe Petco or something, you know, IPO'd last week. If you think about it, you know, what's the future of, uh, you know, pet care, being able to do it online, having a vertical of so many different products and, and you know, and veterinary services. So then you look at these ki- kinds of companies and obviously they list and then, you know, there's a pop. It doesn't mean that I'm going to invest in each one. But to, your, to answer your question, typically the general advice that we often hear is 
don't buy an IPO when it lists. And I used to say that. And here's the thing about always following kind of like the rudimentary advice that don't buy an IPO until six months later. Sure, that might have worked back then when there wasn't that much you know, hype in the market. Right now, there's just so much demand for incredible companies that if you don't act, you miss the opportunity. It doesn't mean it's going to be like this forever. But look at Airbnb, for example. Airbnb hit the market at about, I believe, $150 or so. Right now, it's, it's, I've seen it uh, as high as about $175 or $180. So it's, it hasn't even uh, you know, retracted or retraced below its IPO price, even though Airbnb doubled when it hit the market. So then I say all of that to say, if you see a company that you absolutely want to own, the most important thing you need to do is find out what is this company worth? So for example, Airbnb, it was worth about $100 billion when it listed on on the stock market. So after it's doubling. Okay, so I believe they listed at about 45 or 50 billion and then it doubled to $100 billion in terms of market cap. So then the question or the simple question I ask myself is, do I see Airbnb being a $300 billion company or a $500 billion company or even a $200 billion company? And if the answer is yes, and the way you're able to know whether Airbnb has the potential to be one of these companies with a larger market cap is to find a comparison. So look around, what are some other companies out there? And can I compare them to say, okay, like Airbnb has the potential to be worth 300 billion, 400 billion, 500 billion. And once you can answer yes, then there you go. It's 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 pretty obvious that, you know, even if you buy Airbnb and then it drops, you already have a goal of what you're looking with regards to the future. So it doesn't really even matter in the short term what happens to that stock. And that's the way I tend to look at it. Right. Yeah, that makes so much sense. It's really more about just being able to identify those disruptors in the industry and then having the, you're, you're seeing it change. I mean, you're seeing the way that people vacation change. So like, why wouldn't Airbnb still be around five, 10 years from now? There's people that literally have built real estate empires around the Airbnb platform. So I think that makes so much sense. And if money is going to be flowing into Airbnb as we exit this pandemic, once again, Denise, we're focusing on the flow of, of capital. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. This is so great. Okay. So I want to ask more of a philosophical question now. Why is wealth building something that we should care about in our communities? And I know you touched on this from the aspect of like, we work so hard and we have nothing to show for it, but like, what can wealth actually do to change the trajectory of your family's lineage? <sighs> Janice, wealth is close to everything. I wanted to say wealth is everything, but you know, I know some listeners might be like, no, you know, God is everything, which is true. God is everything. 
But wealth is close to everything. And the reason is because wealth provides you a peace of mind, which in all honesty, almost nothing can provide you that. The peace of mind, the, the feeling of knowing that you're secure, you're comfortable, you live in abundance, you don't have to worry, that, that mindset, it, it just allows a person to be able to truly experience the world, you know, serve, give back, take risk, you know, contribute, push their offsprings, right, their kids into endeavors and, and, and projects and careers that they might not otherwise encounter. Wealth really just is transformational. And I don't think people really understand how much of a big deal it is. And often yeah. it's because if y- you you haven't experienced it, it's almost like something you want to push away. Like, you know, the average person would say, why will I pay for a business class, you know, seat or a first class seat when the plane is getting us to the exact same destination, right? Um, Let me be the one to tell you that, sure, you're going to the same destination, but the way that you are treated, the way you are spoken to, the food that you eat, the quality of your sleep, I mean... Yeah. Even the air that you breathe. <laughs> different experience. <laughs> it is a completely different experience. I'll never forget uh um what's this gentleman's name? Drake. In one of his his songs, he said, We're in the same building, but we have different views. That's that's what wealth provides. It allows you to view the world differently completely differently stress-free to a certain extent it allows you to really reach your full potential because you're not stuck in this survival mode mentality and and that's what holds many of us back and i understand that the survival mode also pushes us because when you have nowhere to go you you know you kind of are pushed to your extreme but at the same time wealth provides opportunities that are just unimaginable. And I really encourage everyone listening, if you've been raised to think that, you know, rich people are snobby, well, then become rich and don't be snobby so that people will have, right, a role model to emulate. But the truth is, the people with money shape this world. So if you're someone who feels you know, you want to change the world in, in some way, shape, or form. The way you do it is with capital, with money. Many people don't realize that businesses that are getting funded, who is making that decision? The person with the money. They say less than 1% of minority founders are being funded by VCs. And we're all here like angry that this is happening. But at the end of the day, we should shift from a, a position of, wanting money from someone to being able to have money within our community, right? The stock market is available to all of us. And I'm not making it simple as in, yes, sure, stock market is available to all of us. So that's the end or be all, but it's a starting point. We can begin. 
we can start with the little that we have, $50, $100, $150, $200, whatever it is, $10, we can start. And I'll never forget, Janice, the very first investment that I, I, I made, which was two shares of, of Netflix, but I don't want people to think in terms of shares. I, I just want you to think in terms of the, the money you're going to invest because the price per share does not matter. And it's something that I want people to internalize. Don't think about, do I need one share, two shares? No, just, just invest the money that you have. I'll never forget when I was filing taxes for the first time as an investor. Even TurboTax will ask, do you have investments? The moment you click yes, you are moved to a different level of, fact, uh, of tax filing. <laughs> it, it transforms you as a person. Like all of a sudden, you're not filing just, you know, the regular people's taxes. No, you know, I have investments. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it, it just transforms you. And that mindset shift, that internal shift, oh gosh, I, I shared this with you because I remember the first time that I, I clicked that I had investments and then it moved me up to the next tier of tax filing. I was like, wow, you know, yeah, Hans is here. You know, we finally made it. <laughs> I love that. That is so funny. Oh my gosh. Um, so I'm sure there's a lot of people right now that are listening that are just like, okay, Dr. Hans, I'm ready, but I'm also in debt. So what do I do? Do I pay off debt and then start investing or do I invest while I'm in debt? What's your take on it? Oh my gosh. It is my absolute favorite topic, Janice. My <laughs> absolute favorite topic. Now my mind is like running in a thousand directions and I don't know where to start, but let me just start randomly somewhere. What is debt? You ask this question and I can imagine people are thinking debt is a burden. Debt is, is bondage. Debt is this. Debt is so many negative things. So I'll give you two definitions of debt. The first is debt is just an expense. Just simply debt is an expense. So if we take on debt, it's, it just becomes a bill we have to pay. So debt is an expense. The second definition is debt allows you to move money that you don't have access to in your future into your present at a cost. That cost okay. is interest. So it's allowing you to get access to future funds now at a cost. That cost is the interest of, of, of being able to move that money into your present. So then you, as an individual, you have a responsibility. How are you using that money? Because in the future, you have to pay it back. So how you use this debt is going to determine if in the future, you're going to have a surplus to be able to what pay it back. Or if you're using this debt right now irresponsibly, and in the future, you don't have a surplus, but you still have to pay it back. And that's the mistake many people make, right? It is in the use of debt that we identify whether debt is used positively or negatively. Coming back to the point about people with debt, what should you do? It is very important that you understand this core thing that I'm about to share with you, which is that you can always... At any point in your life, it can be 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now, you can always come up with money. You can find a way, some way, somehow, work more, start a business, whatever it is. You can always instantaneously come up with more money at any point in your life. You can. But 
you can never instantaneously come up with more time. When time is spent, it's gone. So then if you were to tell me what's more important, investing or paying off debt, from a mathematical standpoint, investing should be the priority. But I'm not going to say that. I'm going to tell you that you should do both. Pay down debt, right? Because you're reducing your expenses, but at the same time, be taking advantage of the fact that time is precious. It's non-renewable. When it's spent, it's gone. You cannot create more of it. You cannot have more of it. So then be investing while paying down debt. And I cannot stress this enough. The truth is, Many people celebrate, and I understand the reason for wanting to celebrate, you know, paying down debt. But even when you do achieve this goal, if you haven't been investing, it means that you've successfully reached zero. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Your debt is paid off. Now you are at zero. Okay. Now you can start building wealth. Hopefully. Okay. Hopefully you're not close to retirement at that time. Mm. Hopefully, the market is on on an upward swing or a bull market over the next, let's say, decade that you begin to start. What if it was at the top of a market that is just going south? What do you do? So then individuals should always begin to invest while paying down debt. I want you to view investing as a bill. You are paying your future self. I think this is so important, Denise. The same way that you feel this need to, and when I say you, I'm not talking about you, Janice. The way that to the listeners and even myself, the way that mentally we feel this need to want to pay someone off We should feel that same need to want to put money into our future, to pay that, you know, investment account or to put that money into that investment account, knowing that our future is secured because that's the only way that we can become free. It is the only way. Giving away your money or having the mentality or the mindset that giving away your money so that you can say you are debt free, that is not freedom. At the end of the day, we live in a world where there are tons of bills. I mean, if you can tell me that we can get to a point where we have zero bills, I'll tell you to focus on paying off debt. But even (laughs) when all of your debt is paid off, you still owe taxes, you still owe Amazon, you owe Netflix. I mean... (laughs) You still have to have a place to live. You still got to pay for daycare. All those things are still going to be a reality. Your cell phone bill, I mean, the internet... I mean, there's so many bills. Bills aren't going anywhere. So people are chasing just this. It is an illusion of freedom. That is the word, Janice. It's an illusion of freedom. And I feel deep in my heart that financial institutions push this narrative because they want us as individuals to prioritize giving our money to them instead of to the next generation. Oh man, that's that's heavy. Yeah. And that's actually quite demoralizing when you think about it, like that we've normalized debt to that point in our society. It, it really just 
when you say it like that, it's like, wow, we're handing over the handcuffs and saying like, hey, put them on me. 100%. And we don't, we don't, we don't view it that way because we don't realize the power of money being put to use to our benefit. That is it. So then it's, it's so easy to just listen to what you have spoon fed with just general media and just say, debt is bad. I don't want any debt. Sure. The, I mean, the person who's getting their money is the bank. I mean, if a person literally feels so uncomfortable with debt that when they are in a bind, they are thinking about how do I pay off my debt? Meanwhile, companies, they suffer just a little bit. Look at this pandemic. What happened to companies? Oh, government is bailing out companies. Like there's unlimited funds for companies. But for an individual, right? There, there is, we don't have unlimited funds. We have what, $600. Companies can just go bankrupt, create a new company. They don't provide that same opportunity for individuals to the point where we mentally just prioritize giving our money away so that we can feel. And that's the, the illusion. We feel we're free. Even though we still have bills, people feel in their heart that they are free. <laughs> I don't even, how is that even possible? How is that possible? If you, if someone who is debt-free, completely zero debt, is to lose their income right now, they are toast. They are, they are going to realize at that point that it's not debt that matters. It is the income or the wealth that is built to be able to provide freedom. That is what's more important. And I think that's what we should prioritize. That is so powerful. Thank you for sharing that, Dr. Hans. I'm like so reinvigorated to continue to harp on this, uh, you know, because I'm not a big like debt repayment budgeting person. Like I, I it's just not where I want to focus my energy when it comes to educating my community, because I do feel like there is so much more power in understanding what you're talking about, just the power of money and the power that you have with every single dollar that you earn to make it work harder than you worked for it. And so I'm so glad that you're sharing this message. So you've told everybody who has debt and wants to invest that, yes, you should do both. So what advice would you give to someone who's ready to start investing? How should they get started? So first and foremost, like we discussed, if you work at a company, make sure you're taking advantage of their retirement plan. So I'm assuming you've done that. Perhaps you've you know, educated yourself on ETFs, index funds. Now we're moving up to the level of stocks. Okay. And let's assume someone listening, perhaps you're new to index funds, ETFs, try and educate yourself. I'm sure, you know, Janice might even have some kind of program to, to teach and educate you about that. So learn about that. And what you want to do is to open a brokerage account. Now there are, you know, different types of brokerage accounts. I'm sure you've probably, for the listeners, they've probably heard about a Roth IRA, which essentially is a brokerage account, or let's call it an individual retirement account, which allows an individual to be able to invest now with the money that they have. It's already been taxed, right? Because when you receive money from your employer, it's been it's already been taxed. 
And in the future, you don't have to pay taxes on any of the growth or the gains, right? So if you're someone listening and you want to take advantage of that tax-free growth, you know, opening an IRA would be the way to go. And through that IRA, you can then invest, you know, in index funds, in ETFs, and then in stocks. In terms of, you know, picking stocks for someone who's a beginner, the way that I would say to view this is through the lens of what companies do you interface with on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis from the standpoint of how are you spending your time you know, with these companies? Well, you're using WhatsApp. Well, WhatsApp is owned by Facebook, right? Or you're watching Netflix. Netflix is a stock. Or you're watching Hulu. Hulu is owned by Disney. Right, or you have Disney Plus for your kids. Well, it's also with Disney, or you watch ESPN. ESPN is owned by Disney. So you want to just take the time to figure out what companies am I interacting with that I don't realize they are incredible investments. Right? As I'm recording this, I'm sitting in front of a MacBook Pro. Apple. There we go. Right? How are we interacting with companies? How are we spending our money? That I think is the baseline for where beginners should start. If you don't know how to do any in-depth analysis, like what I've shared at the beginning of of our uh, you know our time today, you start the very basic. What companies do you love? What companies do you believe in? What companies do you know deep in your heart will grow? And that's, that's where you get started. And don't make it complicated. You can start with about three to five uh, stocks. You know, have about two to three uh, investment funds, index funds, or ETFs. And you just start small, right? And then grow that portfolio over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's excellent advice. I think it's really just about making it a habit. The same way that you pay your bills every month, you should be paying your investments every single month. Even if you can't do this exact same amount of money every month because things change, um, it has to become a habit or you're just never going to build the discipline that you need to become a long-term investor and actually build wealth. Absolutely. it's That discipline is pivotal. And I know for everyone listening, I know that you're going to act on this information because it starts with you. It starts with you saying, I'm not going to wait, right? You, you don't need, you know, thousands of dollars to start investing. All you need is you just saying enough is enough. I work so hard. I have nothing to show for it. Nothing. You know, and I I saw that in my community. Um, Denise, most of the elderly close to retirement, they've worked. You know, they, they bought their homes. They sent their kids to Ivy League schools. And all of them, they reach retirement and, and there's just, there's nothing. And I saw this over and over and I was like, is that what we are going to do in terms of our generation? Are we also going to get to that age where there's nothing? And I felt Hell no. shift. Hell no. Big, <laughs> big N-O. <laughs> no, no, we're going to, we're going to be different. So for the person who's listening, it starts with you. It starts with you just, just prioritizing prioritizing at least 10% of your income. And that's my strategy. You can spend all 90%. You can buy anything you want, buy it and be happy. But 
but keep 10% and then deploy that 10% in the market. Let it work for you. Let it build you and your family generational wealth. And that's a core belief of mine. I love it. Dr. Hans, this has been an amazing conversation. And for folks that want to find out more about you, work with you, follow your journey, where's the best place to find you? Uh, Janice, I just want to thank you so much for just giving me the opportunity to get to know you better. I see you all the time on Instagram. I love your content. It's very well branded. It's an honor. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. For everyone listening, if you want to connect with me, you can find me on Instagram at theinvestingtutor.com. Okay, so the page again is at theinvestingtutor.com. I'm sure Janice will put it in the show notes. And I, I do want to share this because I shared this with most of the members that follow me, you know, everything that I share, I want you to take it as educational and informational in nature, right? And um, I want you to apply this information and, and also go out and double check, you know, say to yourself, okay, he's saying that I should, you know, invest while paying off debt. Let me go grab a compound interest calculator, right? And, and let me plug in how much money is worth or how much money grows. And let me compare it to if I had paid off debt, how much you know, would I have lost over a one-year period, two-year period, so that you can see it for yourself and verify. I mm-hmm. think it's absolutely important because once you begin to see you know, the numbers for yourself, trust me, it's going to shift your beliefs and make you, at the core, someone who really wants to build wealth. So yeah, once again, you can connect with me at The Investing Tutor on Instagram, or my website is www.theinvestingtutor.com. Again, Dr. Hans, thank you. It has been an honor. I love everything that you're doing. I am such a big fan of your Instagram lives. I'm always projecting them on my TV screen, yelling at my husband to come and watch. And um, yeah, I just thank you for being such an important voice in this space and, and someone who's really empowering us to look beyond what we've learned about money and really see what the potential is that is out there and really start just honoring our our ancestors with building wealth in honor of their legacies. So thank you. Wow. So, so, so true. We're definitely going to do that. We, we, we deserve it and we shall. Thank you.